following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, I invite you this morning to take your Bibles and open them up with me to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And make your way to Isaiah chapter 9 with me. This morning, as we gather in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and under the authority of his word, we want to obey the Apostle Paul, who, in his letter to the Christians in the city of Colossae, laid down the following charge. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ is our life. Let us set our minds on him and the things above this morning. And we know that if we are to set our minds on things that are above, there is only one thing that can fuel the fires of such thinking. And that is the holy, inerrant, infallible, fully authoritative and all sufficient word of the one true and living God. And it's to that word that I now direct your attention. And so, as always, it's with a great sense of privilege and honor that I invite you to hear and heed the life-imparting, faith-arousing, and heart-inflaming words of our God, our Creator, our Sustainer, our Merciful Savior. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. 
And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Grace Community Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Birth announcements in our day and in our age come after a child is born. But here, in Isaiah chapter 9, a birth is announced before it actually happens. And this announcement comes not a week or a month or even a hundred years before it happens. This birth of this child is announced nearly 700 years before it happens. The only way this can happen is if the God of the universe moves this prophet, Isaiah, to write with such precision and accuracy concerning what will happen in the future. Because, of course, this God who inhabits eternity knows everything that will happen within the realm of time and space because he has sovereignly ordained everything that happens within time and space. God can move a man to write about the future, not only because God knows the future and has planned the future, but also because he has the power to ensure that his promises and his plans are fulfilled without anyone or anything thwarting or frustrating his plan. And what we have here in Isaiah chapter 9 is the birth announcement of God's own son. You see, before time began, before God created the heavens and the earth, God had already purposed to create a world and a people who would inhabit that world. He knew that the very first humans would turn away from him. And that all their descendants after them would follow in their footsteps. God knew all of that. In fact, God didn't just look into the future and see and learn that Adam and Eve would disobey him as if God could learn something. It was all part of his eternal plan to allow them to be deceived by the serpent in the Garden of Eden so that he could one day display the glory and greatness of his redeeming grace. Friends, before God spoke the universe into existence, he already had a plan to rescue and redeem and renew not only the world, but a people of his choosing out of that world. And the means by which he would rescue and redeem and renew his people is his own eternal son who would leave the realms of glory to live within a world of gloom. He would leave the praise of angels to be insulted by ungrateful sinners. He would descend from his throne of glory to be laid in the dust of death, as Psalm 22 says. 
he who upholds all of creation would himself be upheld to a Roman cross by nails in his hands and his feet. He would exchange his crown of splendor for a crown of thorns. He who clothes the grass of the field with beauty would himself be stripped and cursed as he would give his life as a ransom for many. Of course, before all of this could take place, this eternal son of God needed a human body. He needed a human body. A body that could bleed real blood, not make-believe blood. A body that could bleed real blood and experience real pain. Because in eternity past, he did not have that. He needed a body that could carry a cross and be nailed to that cross. He needed a body that could be bruised and broken and cursed and crushed in the place of those he came to save. That's why we read in Hebrews that a body, he says, you, Father, have prepared for me. He needed a body. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, weaves the event of the incarnation into his plan of redemption. I say that because it is an event. It's not a theory. It's not a concept. It's not an idea. This is a fact of human history that God became flesh. The eternal would enter time. The invisible would become visible. The untouchable would become tangible. God would become man in order to suffer and die for sinful man. There is no other religion in the world that teaches such glorious realities. God would become one of us in order to save us from our worst enemies. This, friends, is what Christmas is all about. This is what it's about. And it's so easy to get caught up in the mushy sentimentalism of this season where we sing about Jesus in a manger and Jesus in Mary's arms. And there's a place for that. But unless we look beyond the staggering wonder of his miraculous birth to the astonishing wonder of his unspeakable suffering and death, we have missed the point of Christmas. If we leave Jesus in the manger and don't move on to Jesus on Golgotha, we have missed the point of Christmas. That baby whose arms were once stretched out in utter and total helplessness toward his mother would one day willingly have his arms stretched out on a Roman cross as he gasps for air and eventually dies in the presence of this same earthly woman who carried him in her womb and nursed him at her breasts. She was there. Read the gospel account. She was there with a few other women. The birth in Bethlehem can only be fully appreciated and celebrated in light of the agony of Gethsemane and the darkness of Golgotha. As one author said, the incarnation is the preparation of nerve endings for the nails. The incarnation is the preparation of a brow for thorns to press through. He needed to have a broad back so that there was a place for the whip. 
He needed to have feet so that there was a place for spikes. He needed to have a side so that there was a place for the sword to go in. He needed cheeks, fleshy cheeks, so that Judas would have a place to kiss. And there would be a place for the spit to run down that the soldiers put on him. He needed a brain and a spinal column with no vinegar and no gall so that the exquisiteness of the pain could be fully felt. This is the wonder and the glory of the incarnation. If all I leave you with this morning is Jesus in a manger, there is no hope there. No hope whatsoever. Because unless we move beyond Jesus lying in a manger to Jesus baptized in the Jordan, Jesus tempted in the wilderness, Jesus strengthened in the garden, Jesus dead on the cross, Jesus laid in the tomb, Jesus resurrected on the third, Jesus exalted to the heavens, and Jesus returning in the future, we have no reason to celebrate, we have no reason to sing, and we have no reason to rejoice because we are still in our sins and we are migrating towards eternal misery and hopelessness. But thanks be to God that we have a Savior who was born to us, who lived for us, who has died for us, who was raised for us, who right now is interceding for us and who will one day raise our lifeless bodies from the dust of earth to live eternally with him in the new creation. This is our hope. This is our song, and it all hangs upon who he is and what he has done for us. Well, as we turn our attention this morning to this prophecy in the gospel of Isaiah, as some call it, Isaiah chapter 9, regarding the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we go back in time between 700 and 740 years before the birth of Jesus into this world. That's a long time. We go to a very dark period in Israel's history. The kingdom of Assyria, the world power at that time, which was one of the fiercest and most feared regimes in all of human history, is threatening to expand to the west and to the south where Israel and Judah were located. Both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah are becoming increasingly idolatrous. God would eventually punish Israel by bringing the Assyrians to take them into captivity, and he would eventually bring the Babylonians a couple hundred years later to overthrow the southern kingdom of Judah, completely scattering his people into captivity. In fact, in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet alludes to the fact that the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali have already been overthrown by the Assyrians. We are told in 2 Kings chapter 15 that these were the first two regions in northern Israel to be invaded by Assyria in 732 BC, Zebulun and Naphtali. Yet, in the midst of an already gone Israel and a downward spiraling Judah in the south, God, through the prophet Isaiah, brings this heart-stirring word of hope of a coming child who will bring light and joy and freedom and peace to everyone who trusts in him. This is the context of Isaiah chapter 9. In 1865... An English businessman by the name of William Dix 
wrote the hymn that we all know as, What Child Is This? And the hymn opens up with this familiar, with these familiar words. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while while shepherds watch or keeping? What child is this? That's my title this morning. And as we delve into this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning, the Spirit of God through Isaiah tells us exactly who this child is. Well, for the sake of helping you see the way in which this prophecy unfolds in these seven verses, I want to present the passage under three very simple headings this morning. Three very simple headings to divide our time in this portion of God's Word. First, in verses 1 and 2, the prophecy takes us from darkness to light. Secondly, in verses 3 through 5, the prophecy takes us from gloom to gladness. And then in verses 6 and 7, we go from heaven to earth as we witness the incarnation of the one Isaiah calls the mighty God. So scene one, if this is a movie, I want you to imagine this prophecy as a a brief movie with three very short but extremely vivid scenes. Scene number one, verses one and two, from darkness to light. Scene number two, verses three through five, from gloom to gladness. And verses six and seven, scene three, from heaven to earth. First of all, as we begin, I'd like to call your attention to scene number one, from darkness to light. Look at verse one with me. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Look back with me to Isaiah chapter eight, the very last verse. The very last verse of Isaiah chapter eight, verse 22. We read this. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Isaiah summarizes the spiritual darkness into which the people of his day were rapidly descending. In refusing to walk in the light of God's word, they would find themselves in thick darkness, the kind that blinds you the kind that prevents you from thinking right and living right. This was the downward spiral of the people of Israel in Isaiah's day. Thick darkness. You see, in the Bible, darkness describes the state of those who are under the bondage of sin. The Bible teaches us that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. His countenance is bright. He dwells in unapproachable light, the Apostle Paul writes. His word, even, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Everything about him is light. So to avoid his countenance and trivialize his word is to walk in darkness. Because everything about him is light. But what Isaiah sees in verse 1 is the beginning of a grand reversal. The distress and gloom of anguish and thick darkness of chapter 8 and verse 22 is coming to an end. It's being reversed. Notice how verse 1 continues. 
In the former time, he, God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Isaiah kind of dates himself here. He takes us back to about 732 B.C., when the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali were already under Assyrian control. We're told in 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 29, that the king of Assyria, quote, came and captured these regions. These were the first two regions in the north to be overthrown by the Assyrian invasion. And notice what Isaiah says. It was God who brought these lands into contempt. It was not the king of Assyria acting on his own will. It was God who brought these regions into contempt. It was his hand that guided this godless war machine of Assyria right into the land that he had given to Israel. All because Israel had turned aside to idols and refused to keep his covenant. We move on in Isaiah 9.1. In the former time, God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But, notice this, in the latter time, that's a, that's a very important phrase in the Old Testament, by the way. In the latter time, in the latter days, in the days to come. What happens? He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations. So notice that in the former time, gloom, in the latter time, glory. That's the promise. God will make this region glorious. Or in another translation, God will honor this region in the latter time. That's the promise. Now in gloom, but they will be visited with glory. That's the promise. What's interesting is that this Galilean region was one that was often influenced or ruled by Gentiles. Hence the phrase, Galilee of the nations, or as Matthew translates it, Galilee of the Gentiles, non-Jews. By the way, Isaiah is the only prophet to ever use the phrase Galilee of the nations. Isaiah, more than any other prophet, accentuates that in the coming Messiah, salvation will come to the Gentiles. Salvation will come to the peoples, the nations of the earth. This is good news for us because we are not Jews by birth. We are Gentiles. We were on the, I mean, we're on the other side of the world from where all of this happened, where all of this started. So whenever we read Isaiah and we read about the promise of God to come to the nations, our hearts should well up with joy because this is us. If God did not promise salvation to the Gentiles, we would not be here this morning. We would be doing everything other than celebrating our glorious salvation from this triune God. Salvation would come to the Gentiles, not just the people of Israel, but Gentiles who had no light, no revelation, no special revelation, that is, no word from God for hundreds, thousands of years. Salvation would come to us. Notice how Isaiah continues in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. 
this region that was the first to be visited by the invading Assyrians would 700 years later be the first to be visited by the incarnate God. The one who would come as the light to shine the light of his saving grace upon sinners living in darkness. This region that was first overthrown would be first to be visited with overwhelming grace. Well, fast forward with me 700 years into the future. You can hear the fast forward noise in your mind. To Matthew chapter 4. You can turn there with me. You don't have to. I'm going to read it. But if you want to follow along, I encourage you to. Matthew chapter 4, we fast forward 700 years into the future. Jesus, at this time, according to Luke, is about 30 years of age in Matthew chapter 4. He has just been anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit at his baptism in the Jordan River. And he has emerged at the beginning of Matthew 4 triumphantly over the devil's onslaught of temptations in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He has just been empowered in the Jordan. He has just overcome the enemy in the wilderness. And here, the very first place Jesus visits after his baptism and after his temptations, the very first place he visits in order to begin his public ministry is the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And Matthew says that Jesus did this, quote, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Quote, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Matthew under the influence and guidance and power of the Holy Spirit, looks back 700 years in the past and says, this is that. This is what Isaiah saw. Jesus coming, beginning his ministry of light and salvation in this region that was overwhelmed at one point in thick darkness. This light is the Son of God. This light is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the brightness and radiance of the glory of God. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is the light of men, John 1, 4. He is the true light, John 1, 9. When Luke describes the conversion of the Apostle Paul on that road to Damascus and how the risen Christ appeared to him, he said, a light from heaven shone around Paul. And when Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus, blessed God after John's birth, he also prophesied these words concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. All throughout the scriptures, Jesus is this grand and glorious, incomparable light that has come into the world. What Isaiah the prophet sees sometime in the future 
is that this land that was the first to be visited by God's righteous punishment will be the first to be visited by his redeeming mercy. What a gracious God. These people who once walked in the darkness of sin and ignorance and hopelessness and false religion have seen a great light. Notice how the prophet Isaiah speaks in the prophetic past, as theologians call it. The prophetic past. He's describing something 700 years in the future, but he speaks as though it's already happened. They have seen a great light. On them, light has dawned. Why? Why speak in the past when you're talking about 700 years in the future? Well, this is typical in the Bible, especially as God's Spirit is working through the prophets to describe the future. He speaks in the prophetic past because in all reality, it's as good as done. If God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Bring in all the armies of heaven. Bring in all the armies of hell and all the armies of mankind and nothing can thwart God's sovereign purposes. We saw this when after our Lord's birth, King Herod sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and younger. But he failed. He failed. God preserved his son, not only so that he could fulfill Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, and come and shine his light upon these regions, but the Father preserved Jesus and held his hand all the way to Gethsemane and Golgotha so that all that God had revealed through the prophets might be fulfilled. What I want you to note here is that although the Bible is describing Gentiles in the region of Galilee in the first century, what's true of them is equally true of all humanity apart from the light of God's saving mercy. Because of our connection with Adam, our first father, we are born in darkness. No one has to train us to walk in darkness. We don't have to be taught that. As Zechariah said, we sit in the darkness. As Isaiah said, we walk in the darkness. Speaking of his own coming, Jesus said, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. We often skip over that verse. Jesus teaches us something tragic about the human race. The human race hates the light. May not confess it with their lips, but they confess it with their lives. We hate the light by nature and we don't come to the light by nature. Jesus said in John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Paul, sent, Paul the Apostle said that he was sent as a messenger to the Gentiles to, quote, open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Paul could say to those who came to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. We were all darkness, children of the darkness. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 tells us that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. 
and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And the apostle Peter, last but not least, addressing Christians in his first letter, said to them, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We've been called out of darkness. Left to ourselves, we would be like those men groping at Lot's door, groping for the handle, blinded by the darkness, just trying to find our way, but content to remain in the darkness. It's the consistent testimony of the word of God that if you are not savingly united to Jesus Christ by repentance and faith, you are in the darkness. You are in darkness. It's the darkness of sin. It's the darkness of guilt. The darkness of ignorance. Spiritual ignorance. Ignorant of the things that you ought to know. The things that are able to bring you the knowledge of salvation, you are in the dark. The darkness of being separated from a God who is full of light, who is light himself. And this great light from heaven has come to call sinners like you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. That's why he came. He didn't come to leave you in the dark. He came to initiate a glorious and grand exodus out of the realm of darkness and into the promised land of light and glory. And I have to ask you this morning, are you one to celebrate Christmas while you continue to remain in the darkness of your sin and hopelessness? Are you seriously okay with coming face to face this morning with the glorious light of heaven only to walk away to your life of darkness with your eyes shut and your ears plugged Are you okay with doing that? Coming face to face with the radiant beauty of God's glorious light, Jesus Christ, and to walk away empty and in the dark. I would just plead with you this morning. I would plead with you this morning. Come to the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can call upon him even now in your chair, in your seat, to save your soul and to bring you into his kingdom of light. What a tragedy to come face to face with him this morning, but fail to trust him and surrender your life to him. Even now, he calls you to step out of your darkness and to follow his lead, to follow his word. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, friends, that is scene one, from darkness to light. We move on to verses three through five, which describes scene two. From gloom to gladness. From gloom to gladness. Not only will the glory of God in the person of his son come and shine upon the region of Galilee. But as this happens in time and space in history, he will turn their gloom to gladness. He will turn their gloom to gladness. Look at verse 3 with me. Isaiah, now addressing God, says... You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. 
I want you to note the twofold increase that takes place when God's light comes into the world in the person of Christ. Number one, the nation will increase. You have multiplied the nation. Now, we know, we know, we know based upon the New Testament that this is not referring to a literal increase to the literal nation of Israel. For Jesus did not come to raise up more sons and daughters for an earthly kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world. He's not referring to a literal, tangible, visible kingdom. He came to bring many sons and daughters to glory. He came to remove sinners from the realm of darkness and to bring them into his kingdom of light. In Isaiah's day, the remnant of God's actual believing people was a rather small remnant within the nation. As Paul said in Romans 9, not all Israel was truly Israel. They were not all justified by faith in God's word. But when Christ would come, that holy nation that Peter speaks of when referring to the church would increase as many would come to believe upon Christ. We often pass over that verse as though it's a, it's a secondary matter. But you, Peter says, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. You are a holy nation. That is God's holy nation. You see, God has a nation on this earth and it's called the church. And it's made up of Jews and Gentiles. And to the point where Paul says there is no longer Jew and Gentile in God's eyes. There is one new man in the place of the two. All that matters now, Paul says, is that you are a new creation. And if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Read Galatians. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are this holy nation. The nation will increase. You have multiplied the nation, he says. The believing remnant in the days of Jesus, made up of Jews, soon to be included, uh, soon to be including the Gentiles, would increase. This isn't the only time, by the way, that Isaiah foresaw something like this. Isaiah 26, 15, listen. But you, God, have increased the nation. O Lord, you have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. Now we know, again, this isn't referring to Israel's literal borders because if anything, they've only lost more territory. How, many, how much has been taken from these people? This is referring to the borders of the kingdom of God, the borders of the believing remnant in that day. Isaiah 54, verses 1 to 3, a well-known passage. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. It's interesting because when Jesus comes upon this earth, he curses the fig tree because it was not bearing the fruit that it should have brought forth. He wasn't, he wasn't a hater of trees or agriculture, and just being wasteful with his creation, he was making a point. He was saying, I have come to this people who should have been ready, and they would not receive me. 
Never again will, he, will you bear fruit. Never again will you bear fruit, he says. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing, singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. This increase in the latter days. The Apostle Paul would take this very passage and in Galatians chapter 4 explain that ultimately what Isaiah foresaw was not a literal expansion of the literal nation of Israel, but the multiplication of the kingdom of God. What's interesting is that Isaiah uses language of the nation multiplying as the result of Gentiles coming face to face with the great light that would come in Jesus Christ. Has that ever hit you? Isaiah speaks of the nation increasing as Gentiles come face to face with the light of Christ. This is how, by the way, one enters the kingdom of God, both then and now. God, in sovereign grace, first shines upon sinners and then brings them into his kingdom. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God shines upon you, giving you the light of his saving knowledge, and he ushers you into the kingdom. Well, not only does God's light coming into this world mean, number one, the increase and multiplication of the people of God who are united to him by repentance and faith in Christ, but it also means the replacement of gloom with gladness. Look at how the prophet continues in verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. And then secondly, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is nothing other than the joy of salvation. Isaiah would say just a few chapters later regarding the people of God, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This is that same joy. And it's tied to God's light coming into the world. God's light would come. As a result, God's kingdom would multiply. It would increase. And God's people would have their joy and gladness increased. And notice that little phrase in the middle of verse 3, they will rejoice, quote, before you. Don't, don't, don't skip over that. That can be translated, they will rejoice before your face, or they will rejoice before your presence. Which speaks strongly of the fact that sinners who were once in darkness and alienated from the light of God are now reconciled and standing before God. They're rejoicing before him. They're in his presence. They're living before his face. They are reconciled to God. No wonder this is great joy 
harvest-type joy. Victory joy. Psalm 1611 says, You, God, make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the joy of being forgiven. This is the joy of being reconciled to God by the death of his son. This is the joy of having the hope of glory. This is the joy of having the burden of sin and guilt lifted off one's shoulders. I remember one of the first genuine conversions I was able to um, witness. The testimony of that individual was, I felt as though God reached down from heaven and lifted off the burden of sin from my shoulders. And he's here today still, praise God. This is the joy of salvation. And I have to ask you, have you been swept into this joy? Again, what a shame and what a tragedy to come to a Christmas Day celebration where we are rejoicing in the incarnation and birth of God's light, God's radiant Son who came to save His people from their sins, only to go back home without the joy of salvation beaming from your heart when it's offered to you freely, without money, without price. Well, what Isaiah does in verses 4, 5, and 6 now is he gives three reasons why this joy among God's people would increase. Three reasons why their gloom will be replaced with gladness. Notice the text. You'll notice that verses 4, 5, and 6, they all begin with the word for or because. He's basically saying they will increase its joy because, because, because. He gives three reasons. Because, because, because. Reason one, note in verse four, God has delivered his people. Reason number two, verse five, God has defeated their enemies. And reason three, verse six, God has sent his son. Let's look at reason one, God has delivered his people. Look at verse four of Isaiah nine. Why will they rejoice? For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you, God, have broken as on the day of Midian. Recalling the victory that God brought about in the days of Midian, which you can read about in Judges 7 and 8, Isaiah says that with the coming of this great light, God has again delivered his people without the help of the arm of the flesh. Without the help of man, he has delivered his people. Again, when we read the prophets, either the minor prophets or the major prophets, both of which bring major profit to our souls, beware of an inflexible literalism, of taking everything literal and failing to see the symbolic nature of these prophecies. I think we think that if we don't take everything literal, we somehow fictionalize the story. But listen, God can speak of real events in real time and real space in symbolic terms, and in no way does it cheapen the end result. This is referring to God delivering his people from the bondage of sin. Again, 
We know this because when Christ came into the world, did he release his people from the oppression of the Assyrians or in that day, the oppression of the Roman Empire? I mean, look at verse four again. You have broken as on the day of Midian. You've broken the yoke that was on your people. You've removed the staff from his shoulder. You've broken the rod of his oppressor. oppressor. And yet when we come and we see when this light does come into the world, it has nothing to do with liberating his people from any physical, earthly bondage. This is referring to the yoke and bondage and burden of sin. If we read the Old Testament like that, that Christ would come and free us from, or free his people in the first century from the Roman oppressors, then we basically read the Old Testament just like the Pharisees were reading it. They were expecting a Messiah to come and crush the Romans. Even the apostles, the disciples, who were trained in the religion of the day, were taught to believe that Messiah would come and deliver them from the Romans. When what they needed, what they truly needed, was a Messiah to come and crush the power of sin and death. That's the yoke that we all need to be released from. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Look at verse 5, where Isaiah gives the second reason for the increase of the joy of God's people. Not only has God delivered his people, but reason number two, God has defeated their enemies. Isaiah 9, 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Again, we have to ask ourselves, when this light came into the world and began his ministry amongst the regions of Galilee, these people sitting in darkness, witnessing a great light, did he come and bring a a physical war and battle against any of these supposed enemies? No. In fact, when Peter tried, Peter was rebuked. Put your sword away. I've not come for that. When our Lord Jesus Christ came into this world as the light of the world and he went to that cross and he bore our sin and our shame and our curse, I want you to listen to how the Apostle Paul describes what happened in that very moment. Colossians 2.13. And you, he says, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And now listen to this language. Christ disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When we read about this warfare in Isaiah 9.5, this conquest, this victory over these 
enemy soldiers. This is ultimately what we were talking about. Christ defeating our spiritual enemies, our greatest enemies, by triumphing over them in his death. Physically, Jesus was being stripped naked, humiliated. But oh, if we could see with the eyes of God and with the eyes of a holy heaven, we could see Jesus actually stripping his enemies and humiliating them. Stripping them of their power to accuse God's people before the throne of God. One author writes, Jesus stripped and removed the evil powers and authorities at the cross and resurrection. The evil spiritual powers have been publicly shamed and discredited. Paul uses the picture of a triumphal procession where the Romans celebrated victory over a defeated foe with a victory parade through the streets of Rome. At the end of the procession, the foes would be put to death. That's exactly what Paul is saying happened at the cross. Jesus was leading. As he was led up to Calvary, behind him were actually his enemies being led to utter humiliation and defeat. That's what happened upon the cross. The serpent's head was crushed and his army was stripped and humiliated. We know that, not because we saw it, but because we are told about it here. That's what he was doing. Well, Isaiah gives a final reason for the increase of the joy of the people of God. This brings us to reason number three. God has sent his son. God has delivered his people. God has defeated their enemies. And God has sent his son. Look at verse six. And as we come to verse three, or sorry, as we come to verse six, We also come to the third and final scene in this movie, so to speak. From heaven to earth. That's scene three. From heaven to earth. Remember scene one? From darkness to light. Scene two? From gloom to gladness. And now scene three. From heaven to earth. Look at verse six. For to us. In other words, why the joy increasing? Why the joy as at a a glorious harvest? Why? For to us a child is born. For to us, or because to us a child is born. This is the third reason why the gloom of God's people will be reversed and replaced, rather, with gladness. Because a child is born, note, to us. That is, he wasn't born for himself. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was born for a people, for all those the Father gave him in eternity past. He was born to save his people from their sins. He was born to save his bride. We all love those kinds of love stories where the hero comes in and saves the girl Friends, all of that is borrowed from the greatest of all stories here, where Christ comes from the regions of glory, descends in the valley of humiliation. For what? To save and to beautify and to adorn a bride for himself forever. This is the same child that we read about just two chapters earlier, Isaiah 7.14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Friends, if we fail to see the significance of these two words, to us, when Isaiah says, for to us a child is born, we miss the whole point. 
Christ, the light of the world, the radiant beauty of the Father's glory, was born to us and born for us. He was born for our salvation. Isaiah goes on. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Notice that. To us a son is given. So this child isn't just born, this child is a gift of God's grace. This is a given child. That can only be language that describes the gift of God and graciously bestowing this gift of a son to us. That's the meaning of the word given. For to us a son is given. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The Son is given by God. He is given a body. He is given as a sacrifice. He is given for our salvation. This is why the joy described earlier in the chapter is increased. This is why the joy is multiplying. This is why the kingdom of God is expanding and the borders are stretching beyond and going left and right and north and south. This is why. Because the Son is given. A child is born, and he will bring light and salvation to his people. And now watch as Isaiah describes this great light, this son who is given to us from heaven above. Look at verse 6. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. The focus now turns to the king and his rule. In verse 4, his people's shoulders are delivered when his shoulders accept the burden of rule. Notice that? The yoke is removed from our shoulders when he ascends and takes rule of all heaven and earth, when all authority is given to him. He has the authority to forgive us for our sins. He will bear all authority in heaven and he will bear all authority on earth as the God-man. He had that authority as God the Son. But now he has it and possesses it as the rightful owner, the rightful heir of David's throne. He possesses it now as fully man. This is wonderful. I mean, you own it all to begin with. Yet you choose to humble yourself to suffer and die so that as a man, you can rightfully say, I earn this, it's mine, and I give it to whom I will. He owns it all now because of his obedience unto death, as Philippians chapter 2 tells us. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross, and therefore God has exalted him, bestowed on him a name that is above every name. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that God the Father seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Listen, far above all rule and all authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. You see, the government, the rule of all would rest upon his shoulder as the God-man. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under Christ's feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Matthew 28, as Jesus sends off his disciples, he says to them, before he says go, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. It's given to me. By the way, this is 
something that the prophet Daniel foresaw hundreds of years in the past. Prior to the Lord coming and being born into this world, Daniel said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The burden of sin is lifted from the shoulders of his people as he bears on his shoulder universal rule and everlasting dominion. Well, now Isaiah moves on to his names. His name shall be called, and he gives four names here, each composed of two words in the Hebrew. His name shall be called, number one, Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Literally, a wonder of a counselor. Everything about our Lord is a wonder. His perfect life, the fact that he is the image of the invisible God, the radiant beauty of God the Father, his eternality, his omnipotence, his grace. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Everything about him is a wonder. He is a wonderful counselor. You see, if he is to bear the authority of all of heaven and all of earth, and if he is to exercise eternal, unending dominion, both now and on into the new creation and the new heavens and the new earth, and he is king of kings and he is lord of lords, he needs no counselor next to him telling him how to govern the universe. He is this wonder of a counselor. Who has taught the mind of the Lord? Who has given him knowledge? Who has taught him something that he does not know? Who, has, who gives counsel like our Lord Jesus? Even at 12 years old, as he's there in the temple, he's answering questions and he's astonishing his hearers. Even at 12 years old, this wonderful counselor. Jesus said, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you might be rich. I salve that you might see. He counsels us to take up our cross and to follow him. He counsels us when he says, what well, does a profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? He counsels us when he tells us, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Do you regard and love the Lord Jesus Christ not only as your Savior and your Lord, but as your wonderful counselor whose word directs your every step, whose word upholds you and sustains you, whose word is your eternal security and confidence? What a wonder of a counselor we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Second, his name shall be called not only Wonderful Counselor, but Mighty God. Is Jesus God? Yes, he is God. He is the Mighty God who became man. This is this third scene, from heaven to earth. Mighty God is born as a child, born as a son. This is the glory of the incarnation, not merely a baby being born, but God taking upon himself flesh, bone, and blood, and skin. It's glorious. 
He is the mighty God. This word mighty speaks of his power. It speaks of his his victory. He came to defeat our greatest enemies. And how did he do it? By humbling himself to the point of death. This warrior God who came to our rescue took upon himself our guilt and our shame, and he faced the wrath of God as our commander, as our great author and finisher of our faith. He faced the fierce wrath of God in our place. And being God, he rose again on the third day after he did that. Wonderful counselor, mighty, victorious God. His name shall be called Everlasting Father, number three. Everlasting Father. This does not mean, by the way, that, that the Bible teaches somehow that, you know, this modalism that there is one God, one person who takes the form of, at times, the Father and takes the form of the Son and takes the form of the Spirit. This is not confusing the persons of the Trinity. This is telling us that He will be to us for all eternity. He will treat us as a Father, In other words, he will be to us a father. He will be all that a father does. A father leads and protects and guides. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. As a father knows how to give good gifts to his children, so Jesus knows how to give good gifts to his people. He will eternally guide us to springs of living water. He will eternally lead us to paths of righteousness, in paths of righteousness. He will eternally lead us as a father and shepherd to green pastures and still waters where we find ever fresh um, newness of life and restoration. Everlasting Father, and last of all, it says, his name shall be called the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Prince speaks to the fact that he is a sovereign one. He is a Lord He is a ruler, but he rules with righteousness and justice, ultimately so as to bring about peace with all who are in his kingdom. He is ushering all of creation right now to a, a new creation that will be marked by peace and righteousness. The lion will dwell with the lamb. The baby will be able to play near the cobra's hole and not be hurt. He will guide this whole creation into a creation, a universe of peace. Well, when the Bible speaks of peace, there's, there's two kinds of peace that, the, that God brings to us. He brings an objective peace and he brings a subjective peace. There's an objective peace that Jesus accomplishes by ending the warfare between God and men, by ending the hostility between a holy God and a sinful people. God is offended and yet Christ takes upon him the cause of the offense, the wretchedness and sin and the guilt of his people, and he goes and he lays his life down as a sacrifice for them, and he's consumed by God and his wrath on the cross. And God's sword is put back into its sheath after it's gone through the heart of his son, and he's ended the, he's ended the warfare, and he has ushered in objective peace. He's accomplished objective peace between God and man. But there's another kind of peace that he gives us, and it's a subjective peace. It's a peace that's felt. It's a peace that's enjoyed. You see, there's a lot of people who, 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 who are, they are objectively right with God. They are objectively at peace with God. The work is done. The enmity is over. The warfare has ended. 
but they don't experience or ever enter, ever enter into the subjective peace that this God offers us. This is wholeness, this shalom that the Bible promises to the people of God who are repentant and who are believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He offers them, yes, objective peace, but subjective peace that is felt. Peace like a river, as the psalmist says. Peace like a river extending our way. He establishes peace by the blood of his cross. It says in verse 7, as we come to an end, of the increase of his government. Remember we read earlier about the increase of this nation? The increase of joy? Well, here's the third increase. The increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. In other words, he will usher his government and he will usher his rule of peace into the new heavens and the new earth where we will reign in righteousness and in peace forever. There will be no end to this peace. It says in the second phrase of verse seven, on the throne of David and over his kingdom. You see, David was promised a descendant to occupy his throne forever. That's why the New Testament, as we open up in Matthew in the coming year, begins with the gospel of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. That's important. We as Gentiles were like, I don't care where he came from as long as he saves. We shouldn't have that attitude because when we, when we understand where he came from, our hearts become heavy with the realization that this God who came to save us is a God who has kept his promises perfectly his promises to Abraham and his promises to David over all his kingdom. Notice, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. Think about that for a second. Christ establishes the kingdom of God. He upholds it, how? With justice and with righteousness. There's no injustice about his rule. There's no injustice about how he deals with his people in his kingdom. The kingdom is sustained and upheld by justice and righteousness. Justice that has been satisfied upon the cross and righteousness that is then imputed to his subjects so that they walk in righteousness. And when they don't, well, there's good news because we have a comforter, a counselor in the spirit of God, a paraclete, who convicts us when we do not walk in righteousness and he brings us back on the righteous path. And as Hebrews chapter 12 says, he disciplines us so as to walk again in paths of righteousness. That's how he upholds his kingdom, with his sovereign power, with his word, but also with justice, ultimately satisfied on Calvary and righteousness given to his people to sustain them. When? From this time forth and forevermore. One writer says, this rule, however, will be unchanging in its character without end in space and time. The fulfillment of the Davidic ideal reflecting the holiness of God and its devotion to justice and practice and righteousness and principle. And now notice how the whole promise and prophecy ends. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's like saying, I've spoken. I have spoken, God says. The zeal, a word in the Old Testament that means 
jealousy. It's a passionate commitment. The love that tolerates no disloyalty and brooks no rival. It is the Lord who plans the future, shatters the foe, verse 5, and keeps his promises. The Lord himself, Yahweh, Almighty, his zeal will see to it that all of this comes to pass. Friends, Christmas is about the zeal of the Lord of hosts. The zeal of God, the passion that God has for his own name and his own glory and bringing us a savior. This is what Christmas is about. In the Bible, we read of the zeal of God the Father. Right here. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the passion, the energy of God will accomplish this. We also read about the Son's zeal. When he came to this earth, he said, Zeal for your house, Father, has consumed me. In other words, he came with passion to save his people and to build his church for the glory of God. But we don't just read about the zeal of the Father here in Isaiah, we don't just read about the zeal of the Son. We also read in James chapter 5 about the zeal or jealousy of the Holy Spirit. In James 4, 5, after James says, why are you pursuing friendship with the world? He says, do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says that he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Some translations suggest that this is the spirit who is jealous within us. Regardless, though, we know that the zeal of the Lord of hosts, the jealousy of the Lord of hosts, the jealousy and zeal of the triune God is what keeps his people, sustains them to the end. Christmas is about the zeal of Almighty God, his passion for his glory, the keeping of his promises to satisfy his people, to save his people, to glorify his name, to usher in a new creation. How? Through a son who is given to us a child born to us. And so we ask this morning, what child is this? What child is this? This is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. And so I ask you this morning, have you received this great light who has come into the world By the way, he is still in the business of shining upon people in the dark. Otherwise, none of us would be here. Have you received him as your king? Have you called upon him as the one to counsel you wonderfully through this pilgrimage on earth? Have you come to say to him like Thomas did, My Lord and my God, as he is the mighty God? Have you come to look to Jesus Christ as a child looks to his father for safety, for provision, for protection, for everything good? Have you come to trust him as your prince of peace? If you have, oh, that you would continue to, with joy, draw water from the wells of his salvation. This is what he came to do. This is who he came to be for us, the Prince of Peace who leads us in pastures of peace after satisfying the demands of God's justice upon Calvary's hill and rising again on the third day in order to extend his kingdom into the new creation. Are you going to be there with him? Are you going to be like those at the end of Revelation who are banished away with the dogs in the outer darkness where there's weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. I'm here to tell you that that does not have to be your destiny. If you call upon him now, even now this morning, he will never turn away any who come to him, but will raise them up on the last day. This is our Christ. Let's pray.